Welcome to the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. What you hear in the next hour could very well save your life. Now, here's your host, Sharon Kleina. I want to invite you to listen to the Sharon Kleina Hour, The Power of Water and Water Life Science. The world has been with us for a long time, and they call it Earth. And the Earth has a magic that means that how we live on this planet from the beginning of all life and time, the word time has been in the water. At the beginning of time, there was this blue, I call it a ribbon, scientists call it a ring, around the planet Earth. And it lived with a solar system for a long time before it changed with this blue ribbon. That blue ribbon, all of a sudden, thanks to the solar system and the rhythm of our the time and all that was happening with the universe, the, a drop came out of that blue ribbon and dropped onto what we call now Earth. The Earth began to develop with time. Millions of years passed. And then all of a sudden, what happened is the droplets came down, absorbed into the planet we call Earth, and then those what we call aquifers filled up in the center of our Earth, and came the water came to life on the surface of the earth. We had a pond. We had lakes, streams, rivers flowing to the lowest part on the earth, and we call that oceans. All of a sudden, the world that we know now became alive, slowly and surely. Nothing was in a hurry. It couldn't, because it developed with the behavior of what we call today an organism of life and, and began a miracle of life on this planet Earth, where we're at today. Can we learn enough? It is impossible. And today our guest, Dr. Neil Thies, with his background and study and dedication and passion, we're going to be listening to why there's so much to learn. We have never explored really enough from the human body living with the planet Earth and I would say the atmosphere and the water that we have been living with. Now, inside of your body, of your organism, of your life, nature had a plan with everything there has been from the beginning. I've always pictured the mirror and the water. And Earth looking at that mirror and the water, Earth excuse me, itself, that maybe what began first was some moss on the water, 
Maybe there was ferns. What came with all of this? And then time, the precious moment of patience with time. The water, the mirror and the water became valuable to the future, but it was all with time. Religions began to develop through the world of our earth because they knew from the beginning the water was the power of everything. Each religion has a different way they look at all that, but it's to be respected because the power of that water is there. We live from the mother's womb There was a nature that in that pocket of water in our mother's womb, we came to birth to live on this planet Earth. And as we learned, we came from the water, and each of our organs in our body had developed before we were born a percentage of water per organ to be able to, when you're born, you begin an evaporation of water, living with the evaporation of the water in the atmosphere. We're always living in water. Every moment of our breath of life is no different than the way the Earth is living and living in this universe called the solar system. The power of water is our everyday life. Have we ignored it? Yes, we did. We didn't, we didn't learn enough, but we're willing with this radio show to learn as much as we can about what is happening out there in research to encourage the world that there is a universe and that we must listen to it. And that as we listen to it, we're going to find that the power of water living on this planet is such a uniqueness of life living with the rest of the solar system that it takes patience and the word time. There's five things we teach. I call it the Health Olympics. Number one, you you need to learn to breathe. As you learn to breathe correctly, you breathe with the earth and learn with its rhythm. It's faith in you living in the water. You need to learn to drink water. How do we drink our water? I've had people all over the world say, oh, I love to drink water. I drink a lot of water. And I'll say, how, much, how do you drink your water? And they'd look at me startled. You're to drink your serious Health Olympics type of water in training. One whole glass at a time. Don't just sip it. That's the serious glass at a time. And try to drink about eight to ten glasses a day. One whole glass at a time. Yes, if you decide to go to the bathroom more commonly, that is healthy. Don't complain. The other one is your nutrition habits are vital to how you nourish your individual body. Your individual body, when you're born, there are no two eyes alike, no two fingerprints alike. We're all different. Isn't that exciting? That's 
fun to be vain about you, who you are, each person, as a vanity of excitement, uniqueness, because Earth made that possible. The other one is moderate exercise. If you're like Tom Brady and you want to exercise, do what Tom does. You get your practice in, how you do practice your football, but you go home and you discipline how you've gone through practice, extremely exertion and your exercise during your training, but you go back to the moderate. I think that's why I've watched him make that touchdown at the last second. Good discipline. And he is very much into health discipline. The other one is sleep. The earth sleeps for a reason. You need to learn how to sleep. All of those things, if you learn to do it, will help you through some very interesting health Olympics of different challenges. Always remember that. Well, today we have an excitement. We have Dr. Neil Thies, MD, from uh, New York, NYU, and we're going to, first of all, we're going to take a moment with our sponsor, with Nature's Tears Eye Mist, who, what is, it's a, the technology product for dry eye. What is dry eye? It's causing vision impairment to blindness worldwide. The surface of your eye is 99% water. It evaporates. You need to learn how to supplement with 100% water that evaporation. It's critical. It's vital. Nature's Tears Eye Mist is a tissue culture grade of water to be able to supplement the surface of the eye with just a mist. It doesn't compete with your eye drops. You will complement the eye drops by using the product, Nature Technology. It's patents worldwide, and the product has sold millions. We'll listen to our sponsor, Nature's Tears Eye Mist, and our new product, Nature's Mist, Face of the Water for the Skin with a tissue culture grade of water for misting but to slow the evaporation down to the skin. We'll listen to our sponsors, and we'll come back with Dr. Thies. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to the Sharon Kleiner Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. If you have a question or comment, please direct your email to SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. That's SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Today we have Dr. Neil Thies with us from NIYU, and I want to tell you a little bit about him. Dr. Thies, MD, is a diagnostic liver pathologist. And those of you who don't understand that, you'll be, he'll be educating us, like we're listening to him in a laboratory as a professor teaching us today what he's been learning about the liver as a pathologist, adult stem cell research. He's a tending physician, and, um, and, and his Bachelor of Science in Computer Science is from the University of Pennsylvania, before earning his MD from Columbia University. Dr. Thies, he's been revising some understanding of the human liver, and what he has been doing has become quite a topic globally because he's been finding some new evidence of some different directions that he's been learning. And he's going to, I don't want to go much longer, but I do know that he has got Theories that are going to be fascinating to all of us worldwide. And uh, now we'll bring on Dr. Thies. Dr. Thies, thank you for joining us. I know how busy you are. So tell us about your life, how you got to where you're at, and then we'll go on with the passion that you have with some of your new directions that you're studying. Okay. Um, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to speak with you. I'm sorry for my interruption earlier. Um, I, I recently moved from Mount Sinai, uh, Icon School of Medicine, to NYU, so, and they get very okay. sensitive which one you're labeling yourself as. Um, yeah. So I'm now at NYU. Um, so, as you said, I'm a doctor and I'm a liver pathologist. All of that was kind of happenstance. Uh, I did not grow up thinking I want to be a doctor. Uh, my major's undergrad, actually, I had two. One was in uh, computer science, as you mentioned, and the other one was in Jewish studies. And um, mm-hmm. I was thinking about rabbinical school for a while. Um, I was thinking about being a geologist. I was thinking about being an archaeologist. I was thinking about being an embryologist. Mm-hmm. Um, usually science-oriented, except when I went off in a religion direction. And... Um, 
But I was, at the time, this is in the mid-1970s, I was coming to terms with being gay and thought that meant that I would not, uh, that I would be alone for most of my life because that's what we grew up thinking often back in those days. And one day, and I thought, you know, if I, one day I'm going to die, who's going to come to my funeral? So my, <laughs> I, this was freshman year, and I was like, I don't know, I want to be a rabbi, <laughs> but yeah, you know, exactly. I was worried about these things. And so, and I was thinking if I become a rabbi, then, and I outlive my friends, then, you know, it's only going to be dusty old scholars who come to my funeral if there's anyone left. And that, the week I thought of this, which was not very cheerful, um, the doctor who delivered my brother and I, um, for whom my mother actually worked in his office as an assistant, um, he died of a heart attack on the golf course. And the next day, my mother called me after the funeral, and I asked her how it was, and she said, oh, all of Hartford came out for his funeral. And I thought, if you become a doctor, people will come to your funeral. Your patients will love you. So I became pre-med, and, um, and that was really a bad idea. That was not good. That was not good planning. Um, so I got into one medical school out of all the ones I applied for because my background in computers and Jewish studies was a little weird, and, um, but it was Columbia. Mm-hmm. And then I got there and realized this was a horrible mistake. I hated it, and I got very depressed, and I failed a year of medical school and had to repeat <laughs> the whole year. But it was the Reagan era, and interest rates on student loans at that point were 23%, and I couldn't afford oh. to quit. Yeah. yeah. So then, but because of that, it's sort of a whole series of traumas, all that led to me to something better. Um I had the summer off, and I wanted to stay near the medical center because I thought if I go away for the summer and come back and see all my classmates going on into the clinical floors of the hospital, I'm going to get really depressed. Small amount of wisdom there. And the PATH department needed to hire some medical students uh, because one of their residents uh, was ill and wasn't going to be there for three months, was taking a leave. And so I got to work in the pathology department. I didn't particularly like the pathology course. Um, You know, you're studying, looking at disease tissues under the microscope, but it's taught generally, it's just, you know, like all of medical school, it's a tremendous Mm -hmm. number of facts and images you have to learn. Uh, There was no joy in it, for sure. But working that summer in the pathology lab, I just loved looking in the microscope, and I loved that Mm -hmm. the other pathologists that were teaching me, you're sort of being a... um, a sleuth. You know, it's a little bit like doing crossword puzzles with human tissue or solving mysteries. You're looking Mm -hmm. for clues and trying to assemble them into a story. And even though I then went on, I finished a second year the second time and did very well. I went into the clinical years and I was very good with patient care and I really enjoyed it. But I really loved doing the pathology. And so I went into that. I was then thinking of becoming a kidney pathologist because I had done some research in medical school um, and I stayed at Columbia for my pathology residency. So the kidney pathologist I had done some research with, I continued to work with her and I thought I'll become a kidney pathologist because at a place like Columbia, everyone sort of picks a subspecialty for academic work. Um, But I was offered six months in London to learn liver Um, I wasn't sure why that was happening, but I said, sure, I'll go to London to learn anything. I can still come back and do kidney. I didn't tell them that, but, Mm -hmm. um, 
But uh, and then it turned out that my mentor, uh, one of my mentors at Columbia, who was the liver pathologist, was taking the next year off as a sabbatical to go write an opera, and. Uh, no one wanted to look at the liver biopsies. And so they sent me to London so that I could come back as a senior resident and diagnose all the liver disease for the medical center, which was mm-hmm. challenging and scary. Mm-hmm. But I became a liver pathologist. And it turns out that community is very small, but really it is. Uh, right. unusually kind and creative and friendly and collegial. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, and it's been my clinical home ever since. So that's about 30 years now. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. So, but you know, then, your you passion, know, what I was thinking is your passion at the beginning that you were intrigued by geology and all of that from your, even though you didn't go into it, you had a connection mentally of, of who you are. Mm-hmm. And where you wanted to go, and it may have been a uh, blessing of the of the tri- of the uh, trip you took to get where mm-hmm. you're at today because of your oh, yeah. intrigue. You're obviously yeah. a very uh, person who has. You're an analyst. You like to analyze everything, mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. can, even though I. Uh, we'll go on here in a minute, but you sound like somebody who loves to analyze. You have the patience to analyze, but you're going to a broader picture than yeah. just looking at the human body. You've been looking at more universal. Am I wrong? No, no, you're not wrong. And the way I think about it is that, um, and I think this is true of anyone who goes into the sciences. Uh, it's very rare you can have this conversation either in medical school or in graduate school. But most people who, be, you know, if you ask advanced students, why are you becoming, why are you doing science? They'll say things like, I want to cure cancer. I'm a, I want to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, I want to win the Nobel the Prize. You know, things like that. Yeah. But, go buy the book. But, no. Right, but the thing is that when the urge to do science usually starts when you're four or five or six, you you can tell who the scientists are when they come into first grade or kindergarten. You know, they're asking those questions. And I think for a lot, if not most, if not all of those kids, it's a connection with the physical world and an understanding that there's sort of no separation between them and the rest of the world. We lose that in our training. There's a lovely Zen quote from uh, Shinryu Suzuki Roshi, who who founded San Francisco Zen Center, um, and one of the people who brought Zen Buddhism from Japan. I'm a Zen Buddhist as well as a million other things. Um, He said, uh, in the mind of the beginner, there are many possibilities. In the mind of the expert, there are few. And when we start (laughs) off, it's just about wonder. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, things are just about wonder. You're looking at the world, and it's amazing. So you're fascinated by it. And, you know, how many kids are constantly asking why, why, how, how? Right. And no answer is enough. That's the beginning of the scientific mind there. But it starts with wonder. Eventually, it becomes this pragmatic, practical thing. Um, and it certainly did that for me because... Um, Going into medical school, as I described, it was sort of for all the wrong reasons, and 
it wasn't being driven by passion. It was being driven by an idea of who I thought I should be. But fortunately, I wandered into pathology and then wandered into liver pathology in a community of people who fostered this idea of, let's just look at the slide and see what it has to tell us. And this is one of the things, this comes in both from my Zen training along the lines that I spoke of, but also from my liver pathology training, that most biopsies, so let me explain pathology, a surgical or anatomic pathology. If but someone I, gets I, a biopsy of a tumor, let's say, um, like a breast cancer, a breast lesion, a piece of it is taken out, it's made into a slide, and a pathologist looks at it under the microscope and says, cancer, not cancer. So that's right. the kind of work I do. Specializing mm-hmm. in liver disease, sometimes it's a cancer, not cancer question, but more often, is it hepatitis? Is it a chronic biliary tract disease? Is it alcohol? Is it fatty liver disease? Um, in transplant settings, is there acute rejection? Is there chronic rejection? So mm-hmm. in the liver, because it's a, it's a kind of peculiar organ in that... Um, that there are very most organs have very clear typical ways they respond to typical injuries. The liver has a more limited repertoire, and so that a whole variety of diseases will share lots of common features. So, if you look at the clinical history of what the clinicians think might be happening, they don't know because if they knew, they wouldn't need a biopsy. But they think they know. They think they might know. And so you read that history and that biases you. And so you can take any liver biopsy and sort of turn it into several other diseases that it's not if you use your imagination. So in liver pathology, the standard approach, which is different than most other uh, specialties in pathology, is that you don't look at the history. You look at the slide fresh. And you see what there is, and you come up with what, on the basis of what you found, what's your most likely list of possibilities. Then you look at the clinical history and you integrate those. And then you narrow it down to what you think is going on or the top two or three things to suggest to the clinicians, oh, do these tests, it will help you figure it out, or it is this, now you can make a treatment. Uh, assessment. Now I'm going to ask because, you Well, well let, hold on. Let me let me okay, let me okay, let, let me just ahead. finish that point. That okay. because of that, you're constantly looking at the biopsy without any prejudgment, and so you mm-hmm. often see things that you're not expecting. And most mm-hmm. of my discoveries have come because I saw something I wasn't expecting to see, That's and because I did not out. yet. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't ha- yet have a prejudgment about it, so I could ask, what is that? And not always, but a few times, that was pay dirt. That opened up a whole new That's field, like the stem yeah. cell stuff. Now, yeah. can I, I'm going to ask you, sure. uh, which organs did you find that were very influential to f- discover that with the liver? Are there other organs in the body that are very influential to the liver? Oh, everything is. You know, I mean, there's nothing in the body that's separate know, from any other part of the body. You don't think there's some that you were investigating with that curiosity that you were born with. Now, I call it passion, curiosity. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're an evaluator. No. You, are, you are an evaluator. I, now, yeah. you could correct me, but you like yeah, to yeah, evaluate. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And you don't get disappointed. Yeah. You don't go looking for it. No. If you find you, 
And you don't right, get disappointed exactly. if you haven't gotten to which might be. You wait for it to come to you. But I'm yeah. curious, in the human body, is there some other, when you were exploring, did you find some other organs that you noticed were weak because of what might be happening to the liver? Well, in... in uh, I'm not exactly sure what you're looking for, but in but the plain meaning is for different disease states in the liver, it may there really may be may be no significant changes in other organs. It may just be the liver. In some diseases, there's often a cluster mm-hmm. of typically involved organs. So there are some diseases okay. where it's the heart and the liver. There are some diseases where it's the heart and the, uh, the liver and the kidneys. Um, okay. Or are you trying to get at the new organ thing? Yeah, I'm trying. I'm working my way, but I'm curious. <laughs> no, but, but, but remember, the study of internally, those organs are all, and I'll talk as a layman, and uh, all the scientists I've had on the show have always said with me in my research that, there, that people find, that find these breakthroughs are not always just scientists, but you have an intrigue from birth, that, and I truly believe with you, those four and five and six-year-olds have got to be respected with their nature of their curiosity, uh-huh, I call uh-huh. it. Yeah. And the nature of that curiosity, would the parents take the time, like a child who sits down to the piano and can play? Does it, you know, that we, we, there's things that we do out there in our lives that give clues to what the future might be to that person to encourage them not to give a, to continue being that person they want to be. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. how fortunate you were to keep yeah. up with that. But yeah. today now, with those organs living with the liver. I was curious when you started finding some of these intrigues and these uh, explorations were coming up by surprise that all mm-hmm. of a sudden you found what, that's why I asked you, was there other organs that gave you the clue of what you uh, were discovering? No, 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 no. It was really no. an inside to out thing. Yeah. I, it all started with the liver. Um, wow. But then, when you find something, because that's my expert, that is my true expertise. But uh-huh. when you find something in the liver that you haven't seen before, then comes the question: Is it just a liver thing, or is it elsewhere? Right. And um, and because you know, there's a joke about pathologists. Um, because I have to be prepared to see, you know, while I focus on liver clinically, I have to be prepared to look at anything. If I'm doing an autopsy, right. it could be anything in the body. If I'm, you know, right. or you could get a, a surgical specimen from any organ. So the joke is that internists know everything and can do nothing. Surgeons know nothing and can do everything. Pathologists know everything and can do everything just too late. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so I, the the when I started... Seeing things, for example, 20 years ago when I started doing liver stem cell work, it was I, I noticed a structure in the liver that people had not paid attention to. I specified a little bit more than people had over the prior 150 years about how long it was and where it was located. And that little bit of information indicated that, oh, there are stem cells in the liver. Now, people who... Um, 
are under 25 years old grew up thinking every organ has stem cells. But 20 years ago, every organ didn't have stem cells. We really only thought the skin did, the digestive tract did, um, and the bone marrow and blood. Uh, It's my group that actually helped confirm that the liver had stem cells. It had been controversial for 40 or 50 years. Thank you. But the the surprise was that our work also indicated that not all stem cells for the liver were in the liver. So we were one of the groups back in 1999, 2000, that showed that the bone marrow also had stem cells for the liver. So, oh, so that's cool. So now I've stepped into the bone marrow. Um, we did experiments at the time. To prove that, we would do, uh, this is the kind of experiment I don't like doing anymore. I don't do animal work if I can avoid it, Um, but I did for a time. And what you can do is bone marrow transplants from one mouse into another mouse. And if you do male bone marrow into a female mouse, any cell in that transplanted bone marrow has a Y chromosome. So anywhere you look in the body and find a cell with a Y chromosome, you know it came from the bone marrow. So now we're going to take our t- moment. We're going to take yeah. our moment right now. They told me, and okay. we're going to come back, and then you're going to teach us about that um, that stem the stem cell evaluation with the bone marrow. Okay, and we'll My go pleasure. forward. We'll be right okay. back. Don't go anywhere. We're going to listen to our sponsor, Nature's Tears Eye Mist for Dry Eye. It's patented worldwide, and it's become a phenomenon that people from all over the world cannot believe how it's working for dry eye. And you can still work, apply it with your eye drops. It really makes the eye drops even better. So if you missed, apply the eye drop, Then, because the eye drop is, is invented to trap the moisture, slow that moisture evaporation down. Nature's tears, I missed. But we have a new one we're launching, Nature's Mist face of the water for the skin. You'll go to naturesmist.com and you'll learn more. We're going to listen to our sponsor and we'll be right back with Dr. Neil Peace. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. If you have a question or comment, please direct your email to SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. That's SharonKleinaHour at Yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Dr. Thies, you were telling us about the stem cells that we've all been familiar with, and scientists have been doing new exploration in stem cells. Uh, they even found stem cells that you can do work with the eyes. Uh, and, and then, of course, then you began to teach us about what your exploration was in the study with the bone marrow with that. Mm-hmm. Could you ref- go back to that again real quickly, and then you can take it sure. forward with what you were learning. Sure, of course. So um, we had showed that the liver had stem cells, and we did that in humans, actually. Um, I primarily look at clinical specimens for my research, looking at human tissues, not animals. Um, and But what we realized looking at the stem cells in the liver was that our human data couldn't explain all the animal data that suggested that maybe there were stem cells that came from outside the liver that all the stem cells for the liver weren't inside the liver. And since they would have to travel there through the blood, a logical place to find them would be the bone marrow, which produces all the cells for the blood. Could it also be mm-hmm. producing cells for the liver? So mm-hmm. to do this, we, um, you could look at some, and we actually did this in humans too, um, where we looked at clinical specimens of women who have had male bone marrow donors. And because they had leukemia, for example, and so they got a bone marrow transplant where their own bone marrow along with their leukemia is wiped out and they get a new bone marrow stem cell put into them and that produces all their new uh, blood cells for the rest of their lives, hopefully. And so if it's male cell, it has a Y chromosome. Female cells only have two X chromosomes. So any cell that has a Y chromosome after the male bone marrow transplant has to have, um, has to have come from the bone marrow. And mm-hmm. so sure enough, we see liver cells with Y chromosomes. That meant that the liver had stem cells in the bone marrow. Now, when wow. we did the mouse experiments to do this... Um, other colleagues were doing this at the same time. Um, it was sort of an idea that was starting to appear in the air in a few different laboratories. They were all cell biologists and stem cell biologists. And so their approach was they would do the experiment with the mouse, and then they would take out the liver and look at the liver. But my colleague on this work, Diane Krauss at Yale, um, she and I are both pathologists. And when a pathologist get samples from a dead body, we do an autopsy. We take samples of everything. So our training was in humans, and when you have a dead human, you take a sample of every organ because you're trying to figure out why they died. So when we did the mice, we didn't just take out the liver because we were looking into liver stem cells. We looked at every other organ. And it turned out there were, there were cells in every other organ from the bone marrow. And it was actually that paper that showed that bone marrow stem cells um, could produce every cell in the body, every cell type in the body. And that eventually, a few months later, led to George Bush's address to the nation um, about stem cell research. Because now the anti-abortion lobby could say, see, we don't need to do embryonic stem cell research because adult cells can do everything. It was our, there were several papers leading in that direction, including some from ours, but it was our paper that showed definitively that that was the case. So mm-hmm. unintended consequences, suddenly we're in politics. It was an interesting time, to say the least. Um, I stayed in that field for 
mm, six or seven years. Uh, because of the politics, it was very difficult to get funded. And I kind of got bored because I'm one of those researchers who likes to look around rather than dig deeper and deeper and deeper, uh, which is mm-hmm. sometimes a flaw, but sometimes a help. And, that is a help. Uh, that is a help. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Some of us are supposed to be looking around for new stuff. Some of us are supposed to be digging deep to, to explore the, the finer detail. You know, it, it takes both kinds of science. Um, it's, it's not easy to get funded for the kind of stuff I do, but I have the advantage that I'm a clinician and I have uh, human tissue specimens coming by me. I have hundreds of slides a day to look at sometimes. And if I keep my eyes open, you know, as we discussed before, you see things you didn't notice before. Mm-hmm. And uh, there you go. Now, when you discovered the, uh, the, the new uh, discovery about the mm-hmm. liver, it was the liver that has, has given you the, the, um, now the credibility to keep going further. It was the liver that did that when you explored. Yeah, we started there too. Yeah, so now what you're talking about is the interstitium, you know, the possible new organ that was reported about a year ago. That's what and, I'm curious about. Yeah. yeah. So again, it was started in the liver, more specifically in the bile duct. Um, my colleagues, uh, David Carlock and Petrus Benius, they're endoscopists, they're gastroenterologists, GI doctors who do things like put scopes down your throat or do colonoscopies to look for polyps. Um, so everyone who's an adult knows you know, what this is and has experienced it or will soon enough. Um, they had developed, uh, they were working with a company that had developed a new kind of endoscope that allowed you to do microscopic analysis like I do at the microscope, but instead of looking at slides, they're actually looking at the living tissue. Mm-hmm. And most of the things that they looked at with that scope looked like we expected them to look. But when they looked in the bile duct, um, they saw a pattern that didn't make any sense. Um, it didn't look like their understanding of histology. And so they came to me because I was actually in the GI division um, back then. And so my office was next to theirs. And they come next door and show me this picture of what they're seeing with their new fancy microscope endoscope and said, this is in the bile duct. What is it? And I said, I don't know. It doesn't look like anything I've ever seen in a bile duct. So we looked back at a whole bunch of histology textbooks uh, you know, drawings and pictures, and I have a little collection of them so I could go back a hundred years. None of them even had pictures of the large bile duct because it's sort of boring. It's just the tube that goes from here to there. No one's particularly interested in it. Um, So I thought, okay, let's actually look at some slides. And because I work with a liver transplant team, or there are operations like if you have cancer of the pancreas, part of your bile duct comes out um, when they take out the, the, the pancreatic cancer, Um, So we looked at those, and there was nothing there that looked like what they were seeing in the living tissue. So it became this puzzle. We think that what we see on the slide is what living tissue looks like, but it's not always. You think. You think. The mind of the beginner has many possibilities. The mind of the expert has very few. So what we see in the wall of the Can we say something real quickly? Let's say something real quickly about... This for all the medical students out there and anybody in any professional uh, education and training and whatever. Mm-hmm. You just put it, 
it, the books are written, but there's so much more. Oh, You've yeah. got to have a curiosity and the love to explore like an astronaut. You're yeah. an astronaut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's fine. But I'm, I'm working my way through inner space. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, continue no, 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 on no, there. No. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's something when I teach the medical students, it's something I emphasize. You know, and I, I used to think textbooks were like holy writ, you know. Uh, yeah. And I actually said to the man who trained me in liver pathology, I said, your generation described everything. What's left for me to do? <laughs> and he patted yeah. me on the back and said, don't worry, you'll think of something. <laughs> yeah. and, and sure enough. Um, you did. Yeah. But so, and, and everything I've described, it'll be modified and revised again in another 20 years. And that's fine. That's the exciting part. But so, what the, basically what they saw was that the wall of the bile duct it looks on the slide like dense layered collagen, dense connective tissue. And it has these little cracks in it because dense connective tissue is stiff. And so when you cut it very thin to make a slide to look under the microscope, you get some cracks in it. But it's just because it's stiff. We call that an artifact. It's not really a real thing in the tissue. It's just from the processing. Well, it turned out when we actually did the whole uh, effort to figure out what was going on, it turns out those cracks were not artifact. They were tiny remnants of very large fluid-filled spaces. But because when you take tissue out of the body and cut a little piece of it to make a, a slide of, for a microscope, the, the water drains out of it. And so, it means a quick evaporation. Right. It's both a, it is both a quick evaporation, but literally flow, <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it, it drips out. Yeah. And then you add, then you throw it in a fixative like formaldehyde um, to make it stiff enough to cut for a slide. And that binds everything together and tightens it up more, squeezing it out even more. And so these big fluid filled spaces in living tissue disappear on the slide. So what now, looked I'm like in- interrupt real quickly. Yeah. You mm-hmm. you encouraged that water flow to continue. Did you uh, encourage the water flow? We don't even you know, it's just part of the process. We don't even think okay. about it. Okay. Okay. We've you been making slides this way for a couple of hundred okay. years. Yeah. Okay. Um so so then what happened was so we see this new anatomy in the bile duct and we think, well, the bile duct's more interesting than we thought it was. Um, and stopped there. But because I'm a clinician and doing general diagnostic pathology, I not only see liver and bile ducts, I see stomachs and colons and small intestines. I see lungs and kidneys and breasts. And within a few weeks, I saw, uh, you know, operative specimens for colon cancer and stomach cancer. And there's a layer, the same layer in the bile duct is present in those um, in those organs too. And now having seen in the bile ducts that those cracks are there, I looked at the colon and the stomach, the cracks are there too. Mm. Oh my goodness. So it's not just the bile duct, it's the whole digestive tract. And these cracks are the artifacts. And in fact, it must be this big fluid filled space. That's cool. Some weeks go by, and I get a specimen for a breast cancer, which has some skin on it. I got to ask you, were your were your knees yeah. shaking? 
<laughs> Not yet. I have had those moments. <laughs> whenever, I, whenever I discover something, my knees will shake because I don't yeah. want to be influenced by getting excited. I'm going to keep going yeah, on. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, the, there are definitely moments with this. The stem cell stuff was more like that, but there were a few moments with this as well um, where uh-huh. you're just like, you, you, don't, you haven't yet seen... You know where it comes in for me is where you see that what you knew is wrong, but you're and you're on the verge of seeing what the correct view is, but you're not there yet. And, I like and then you're in this in-between, I have no idea what's going on space. That's where I get the little tremors. <laughs> um, <Right>. But so... <laughs> So then we, I, I had this bit of skin from this breast case, and the dermis, the second middle connective tissue layer, the dense fibrosis, um, fibrous tissue of the skin, there were the cracks there too. Um, wow. And everywhere we looked, what ultimately turned out is that everything that we have described in our classic allopathic Western medicine as dense fiber connective tissue, dense fibrous tissue, all the fascia of the body, um, these middle layers of the skin and the organs, um, connective tissue around blood vessels, etc., etc. In our tradition, we all describe this because of the artifact as dense connective tissue. It turns out they are all fluid-filled spaces. And there were people who already knew this. They just don't, we haven't allowed them to publish in our literature because they're divergent views. Okay, I'm going to ask you you so we can understand. The fluid spaces, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. There's no, uh, it's got this space that you don't know what is happening in that space. Well, now we know a little bit about the space. So, and it okay. turns out to be a large volume. It's about 20% of the fluid volume of the body. So it's a large 20%? space that we didn't know existed. 20%? 20%. 20%. Yeah. Why yeah, go figure, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, it's a fast-moving fluid like blood and lymph. Um, it contains lots of proteins as well as small signaling molecules, but large molecules that, you know, from it, for inflammation, hormones, mm-hmm. all the signaling that goes in the body. But interestingly, mm-hmm. it's not just fast-moving watery fluid. It's also got something called hyaluronic acid um, as well as some other large charged molecules. And when you have lots of hyaluronic acid, it's actually more like jello. So uh-huh. how can you have a fast fluid that's also jello? Because jello uh-huh. isn't moving anywhere. This is one of the things we're, we're starting to investigate. We haven't published it. There is data from other groups similar to this, um, mm-hmm. but putting it together with our anatomy hasn't been done before. We've submitted this for publication. But basically, uh-huh. it turns out that a viscous fluid like jello can act as a filter for a, a more down. watery fluid. Slows down. Right. Slows down. I'm sorry, say that again. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so it one slows is down the organism. through the other. It would slow down the organism's weaknesses, too, if it was, uh, if it was healthy. Um, I, I don't... That's the kind of intuition spoken in a metaphorical language that may okay. not well be true, but I don't know how to turn it into science. Yeah, right. <laughs> but we're working on it. That's the thing. To some extent, okay. we, often, we often don't know how to take those intuitions, like you just expressed, and we say, 
<clears throat> we often say, well, that's just an intuition, and we don't see that in the body, so it's probably right. wrong. And we're dismissed right. very often. And yet we know that there's something there. A good example mm-hmm. is acupuncture. We know it's testable and reproducible, and yet it has never been explained according to our classical Western medical things. Well, the structure of the interstitial spaces with the fluid, there's also electrical flow through these these structures. It turns out that we can come up with some interesting hypotheses for acupuncture based on this structure. So it's not that there's no explanation for acupuncture. We simply were too ignorant to explain acupuncture because we didn't have the anatomy that conveyed the signals. Exactly. Maybe, maybe that's what we have now. So wow. I, I'm, I'm very hesitant wow. to dismiss people who have profound clinical intuitions based on long-term practice simply because I can't right. imagine what the mechanism is. Right. So I keep that an open so mind. Now, yeah. you're telling me, uh, you know, and you know this show is called The Power of Water. How important mm-hmm. is it, as you've learned, with all that you've been uh, 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 practicing here for this long, mm-hmm. how important is it that they drink enough water a day, everyone? Oh. <laughs> well, you should hear me talk to my mother about this. <laughs> <laughs> Mom, you're not drinking enough. <laughs> um, uh, no, it's, it's, it's vitally important. The, the, Everything that happens in your body happens because the molecules in your body are suspended in water. And all the interactions that they have, out of which arise the structures of cells, and therefore the structures of tissues, and of organs, and your entire body, all of that is dependent on having sufficient water for everything to be floating in. If you don't have everything collapses. And 100% water, not adding... Not a juice or a coffee or a, a tea, or a, it's got to be 100% water to drink. Particularly if you're drinking a lot of tea or coffee, because they right. both also are diuretics. So you're pissing right. out lots of water, even as you're drinking yeah. it in, and you're going to wind up with a right. deficit. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And what are some of the other things that we're almost done? That and what a fascination! Thank you for being here today. But what are some of the other things you've been learning about the word nutrition? People thought it was a way for a lot of companies to make a lot of money. Your diet is vital. Sure. Well, you are what you eat. Um, you know, one of the things I like to think about is we picture ourselves as being these living things that are separate from each other, all walking around on this big rock that circles the sun. And that's right. true. We are. You know, that's also, that is true. However, there is no atom in your body that isn't drunk or eaten or breathed in from the planet. So, in fact, there is no boundary between us and what we eat and drink and breathe. We're not only beings living on a rock. We are the earth which has organized itself into beings that think they're beings that are separate living on a rock. We're going to have to leave it right there. You did a perfect job of educating us today, giving us your valuable time the excitement that this future holds, and you just wound it in today. What you've you've given us is just what you said. I want to thank you for being here today, and um, I hope we can bring you on again someday. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. Well, and thank you so much again for all that you're doing.
I wish you well. And you too. Thank you. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Bye. Can you imagine Earth whispering to us every day, listen well, take your time, and be patient, is what the doctor just taught us. And there's so many cures to be found with his exploration and the, I call it passion of curiosity. Thank gosh, go buy just the book. There's so much to learn. I want to thank you for listening today, and you be well. Thank you for listening. Join us next week for another edition of the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel with an encore Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Remember to visit Sharon's website at SharonKleinaHour.com. We'll be right back.